ready for battle from Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 12 and this is part 24 in our series on the epistle of the Apostle Paul's to the Ephesians. So in Ephesians uh, so far we have looked at the foundations of what we believe and yes I always forget thank you children uh, and leaders for Kids Church. So we have looked at the foundations of what we believe. Then that's the first three chapters. Then in chapter 4, starting with chapter 4 through to chapter 6 verse 9 that we did last week, the Apostle dealt with the question of the Christian walk, the way in which our salvation is to affect our lives. So that our salvation is that vertical dimension and, that, and then how that affects the way we relate to one another in the horizontal dimension. Most of our experiences are dealt in the various relationships that we are part of. And uh, we looked at submission and, and what that looks like in our families and in the workplace. But there is another aspect to all of this. Warren Weasby is spot on when he says that sooner or later the Christian discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. I think that's very insightful. So from verse 10, the Apostle will talk to us about this battle, the Christian's warfare. And and it's a magnificent section in which the Apostle warns us of our foes, tells us about our resources in Christ, and the equipment that every Christian warrior needs for this battle. So let's get into it. First of all, the call from verses 10 and the first part of verse 11. Finally, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God. So there is this abrupt transition. If you read the epistle as, as such in one go, there is this abrupt transition from working for peaceful homes and peaceful workplaces and peaceful churches. And we move then to the hideous and malicious plots that await us at every turn. When it comes to church, we all wish we could spend our days in in peaceful tranquility, in the fellowship of God's people. But that is simply unrealistic, isn't it? We are, in fact, in a battle of cosmic proportions. He himself, the apostle, was in prison. He was chained to a Roman soldier in full gear. He wasn't going to waste this opportunity of having this guy, you know, day and night chained to him and he says what am I going to write about what am I going to speak about Uh, he draws some important lessons from the way that this Roman soldier was dressed and he's going to bring us some really important spiritual aspects comparisons and apply them to the Christian life the stuff that we need for our battle and folks when the preacher when the preacher says finally, the, 
the congregation is already reaching for, you know, their keys and, and uh, is already saying, you know, come on, get ready, get run to the door so we don't have to say hello to anybody. Uh, or get quick, uh, get to the food before, before Zach gets to it. <laughs> uh, uh, I like picking on Zach. Um, so when the word finally uh, occurs, um, we're ready, getting ready to go home, right? But here the word can mean something else, which you don't expect. It could actually mean for the remaining time. What remaining time? Well, the time between the Lord's first coming and until the second coming. So there's, there's a time in between. And the peace that we experience in Christ will be, it won't be experienced on a beachside in a hammock underneath some palm trees. But the peace that we experience in Christ will actually be experienced in the midst of a raging battle. That's the biblical description that I get from the Bible. So in order to withstand, we need a a constant appropriation of the strength of the Lord. It's not something that we do once and for all and that's it. I don't need to do it anymore, but... We are to constantly be strengthening ourselves in the Lord and in His mighty power. Interesting that Paul's command to be strong in the Lord is actually in the passive. It may be better understood as be made powerful in the Lord. In this regard, many have noticed the similarities between what we read here in Ephesians 6 to the book of Joshua, starting from the first chapter. And the children of Israel, in, back in Joshua, they have finally made it and are, are ready to go into the promised land. They are to invade it, conquer it, occupy it. In Joshua 1.7, the Lord tells Joshua, be strong and, and And very courageous. These words are very similar to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And we know that when the the children of Israel went into the promised land, into Canaan, it it wasn't a holiday resort. Finally we're here. You know, we're in Wally World. Finally came. No. When the children of Israel went into Canaan, it's... It was a struggle, it was a fight on so many different levels. And similarly, when the believer enters into the Christian faith, when, when the unbeliever enters into the Christian faith, when he, and then he's a believer, he realises, wow, this is, this is a lot more harder than what, I, than what I thought. It's a lot harder than what the preacher told me, you know, when I gave my life to Jesus. And all those promises that all my problems will go away, that my ailments, everything will be healed, my finances will be fixed up, you know, my marriage and family, all my kids will be so wonderful to me. No, no, who told you that? It's not in the scriptures. 
In fact, if anything, those things become a lot more intense. Because you're aware of them. You know what it's supposed to be like. You know the, the ideal. When you were in darkness, you didn't even know. You probably didn't even care. So here we are. We are faced with so many conflicts. This is the reality. But before we move on, it's important that we notice what the Apostle does not say. He does not say, be strong in human plans. He doesn't say, be strong in human methods. He does not say, be strong in the latest ideas that are popular in the church today. What he says is, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Why is this important? Because our enemy is cunning and powerful. Very. So let's look at the schemes, the second part of verse 11. What are the enemy's schemes? And lastly, we'll look at the enemy. But now let's look at his schemes. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, it would be a lot easier for us to identify a physical enemy or an organisation or a political system that we, we can understand that. We see it in the news. We know what it feels like, what it looks like, what it sounds like. How do we fight evil which goes beyond the physical? Again, Paul is writing all of this from inside a prison where he's chained. It would have been easy for him to blame the guard to whom he's chained. It would have been easy for him to blame the Roman government, the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem. He didn't do this. Yes, people may indeed act in an evil manner, and very often they do, but there is something far more sinister behind their action which is invisible to the human eye. That's what Paul is getting at here. In the Bible, we are told that believers have unseen enemies. It's not that when the Bible says this, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't say it to get us to panic or to live in this constant paranoia. It's not that for that reason. Like the, like the warnings when you're driving, the warning signs on the road, they are there to make us aware of the condition. Slippery road ahead or, you know, steep descent or steep rise. It, it, it's there to, so that you can understand what you're facing to have your wits about you. We recall the discussion between Peter and Jesus uh, in Matthew 16. 
And, and firstly, you, you cannot help but admire that Peter's declaration. It was great. In verse 16, Simon and Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And shortly after, just a couple of verses later, shortly after, this is what happened. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples what he must go to Jerusalem, that he must go to Jerusalem and, and to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, I'll repeat, Jesus turned and said to Peter, I'll say it again, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What a dramatic change. If you don't pick it up, there's something wrong with you. There's this dramatic change. Firstly, he was, he was nothing less than a spokesman for the Heavenly Father. It's, it's this amazing revelation that he received about who Jesus was. And he declared it. He was declaring something revealed from God, from the Father. And he gets commended for it by the Son. The next thing we hear is that he was a spokesman for the devil himself. In verse 17, he had said of Peter, Blessed are you. And here Jesus calls him Satan. He calls him Satan. Which is, of course, is a reference to the fact that standing behind Peter's comment was the influence of Satan. So I wonder, how can you move from one to the other? Just like that. Peter couldn't see him. The other disciples, I'm sure, wouldn't be able to see him. But Jesus did. This is why, again, we need to have our wits about us. That there is a transcendent nature to evil. Evil goes beyond what you can see and feel and with your senses. The heart of our conflict is not against flesh and blood. It is not what is imminent, scientifically verifiable, something you can cut up 
and study in a lab. There is a cosmic nature to evil. And we certainly need to remind ourselves of this when we are in conflict or in disputing with someone. Because in the end our conflict is not with the person with whom we are disputing, but many times the enemy is using them without them even realising it. And if we're not careful, the enemy could be using us. The battle we face is not easy to spot, but very subtle at times. And there's a good reason for that. In Genesis 3, where the serpent is introduced as as being more crafty than the other animals. And here in verse 11, Paul speaks of the devil's schemes. Because Satan is indeed very He's a tricky devil. Literally. Satan does not come to us in ways which we easily see and and interpret. Because evil rarely comes to us openly and obvious. Evil comes wrapped in the cloak of, of goodness. It's multi-layered and complicated and subtle. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light and his servants masquerade as agents of righteousness. Did you get your head around that? Martin Luther was right when he said, when you look for the devil, don't forget to look in the pulpit. The devil rarely comes to you whispering, let's do some really bad things today, okay? Let's, how about some rape and robbery? Hey, how about that? Sometimes, I would say most times, I would say it's in the attraction to good things, in the money, the comfort, the ideal family that you want, even the ideal church. And many times evil forces are attracted, someone said that evil forces are attracted to good like moths to light. At other times, evil forces are attracted in the resent, the injustice and the indignation that you feel. You don't deserve to be spoken like that. Surely, that is so unfair. They are just bullies, you know that. He pokes and he prods and he goes after says, yeah, I don't deserve to be spoken like that. I don't think he is. He's a clever devil. But who is he? Or who are they? 
Let's now talk about the enemy, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, our battle is not against human beings, but against cosmic demonic powers. And throughout the Bible, from Genesis right up to Revelations, the Bible instructs us about the enemy and his cohorts. There's no excuse for us to be ignorant of this. So there is little excuse for us to be caught off guard or be surprised. However, today in the West especially, our culture has largely dismissed the idea of Satan as a prehistoric notion and adopted a view which sees humanity in more materialistic terms. Emily Kay, uh, Emile Kay, who, who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary, said, and I quote, the neatest trick Satan has ever perpetrated is to make so many think he does not exist. End of quote. And because of the changes that have occurred in the last 200 years in Western culture, passages like this are seen as somewhat irrelevant, even by Christians. That we are, this is ancient, ancient mythology. We don't, we don't believe that stuff anymore. So after having dismissed the, the spiritual dimension, there's therefore you need to then search for answers. But you won't find the answers. But that doesn't stop us trying, trying to find solutions for the problem of evil. So change in human behaviour is sought through legislation. We need another law. Like we haven't got enough, we need another one. And then education. And if that doesn't work, well, let's just go all the way to indoctrination, right into the preschool, so we get it ingrained in them. So through legislation, more and more laws seek to control evil by edict. This is now illegal, they say. But legislation can't change the human heart. We know that. And through education they attempt to go inward to adjust our wills and our behaviours. But since the mind is twisted by sin, education seems to create even more ways of getting away with wickedness. You put somebody in jail... And jail just seems to be like this school for crime. Because next time you're out, you're not going to get caught again. And they reoffend and they're back in there again. So once our education dismisses the transcendent nature of evil, the devil, original sin, it simply cannot come to grips with what is really happening in our world. 
there's an insightful lesson from the movie Silence of the Lambs. The FBI agent asked Dr. Hannibal Lecter, what made you like this? What happened to you? She's basically asking what sociological, biological events shaped you to make you behave the way, the atrocious way you do. That's what she's asking. And he looks at her and says, and I quote, Nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. Nothing has happened to me. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You have given up good and evil for behaviourism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is never anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? End of quote. As we have seen, God's word does have an answer for evil. God's word accounts for Satan and people like Hannibal Lecter, fictitious though he was, but there were others who were real, like Hitler and Stalin and Mao. And, and, and most of the leading stories, it accounts for most of the leading stories in our current news. The type of forces that lead people to commit suicide. Domestic violence. And to beat up old people and even kill their parents. It tells us in black and white that evil is what evil is and the enemy behind it. But as Christians, I need to remind you that we have more than just one enemy. We actually face three enemies, which are what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is what Paul tells us. He told us back in chapter 2. Let me remind you of the verses. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Number one. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Number two. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Continues to work with those. All of us also lived among them at one time. The Apostle Paul is including himself in that. We used to, this is the way we used to live. Gratifying What? The cravings of the flesh, number three. And following his desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The, the world, again, it refers to that system that is opposed to God. It is, a, it is society with its own values. It seeks to live totally apart from God. The flesh... The flesh is the old nature that we inherited from Adam. It's just you were born, you inherited this nature. I'm sorry to tell you. 
that's the nature that we go to by default. It, it, it is opposed to God, and, and we in the flesh, we can't do anything to please Him. Even the good stuff will not be enough to please God if we do it apart from God. And then we have uh, the devil, of course, which is our main enemy. And, and, of course, any army going into battle has to understand the enemy, where he is and what he is like in order to defeat him. And we just looked at the schemes, some of the stuff that he uses. There's plenty more. And this enemy has many different names. Devil, the name devil means accuser because he accuses God's people non-stop before the throne of God. That's what devil means, accuser. This is what we read in Revelation. Revelation 12, verse 10. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Satan, that's another name, means adversary because he is an enemy of God and our enemy. In the Bible, he is compared to a lion in 1 Peter and first appears as a, as a serpent back in Genesis 3. And during the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, he is called the tempter, chapter 4 in Matthew. And then in, his, in, in Jesus' confrontation with the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus didn't hold back. He just told it the way it is. He didn't hold back when he called him a murderer and a liar. This is what we read, John 8:44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks, I love that phrase, when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Wow. What do you mean, Jesus? Now, since the devil is a created being, he is not eternal like God. He is limited in his knowledge and activity. Unlike God, Satan is not all-knowing, not all-powerful, and not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. And and since he can't be everywhere at the same time, how does he do it? He has helpers, an army of demonic powers, which assist him in his attack against believers. This is what we read in Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him. Demons are the demonic angels. And one of Satan's favourite schemes is to copy or imitate what God has done. 
is not very original, we must say. Remember how in Exodus Moses turned his staff into a snake and that was great, but then Pharaoh's magicians, they did exactly the same thing. But Pharaoh's snake was obviously more powerful and ate the rest. So what Satan does is that he has developed a thorough imitation of, of Christianity. It's, it's viewed to be viewed as a system or religion. In his role as the imitator of God, he inspires false Christs, false prophets. He employs false teachers who are specialists in his theology. And he goes on bringing destructive heresies non-stop. They are uh, very adept at mixing truth and error in such a way that it almost seems, wow, that sounds so good. Truth, error, everything mixed together and they serve it up many times from the pulpit. And the Bible also gives us a picture of Satan leading a a great host of well-organised fallen angelic beings. They are organised into principalities and powers and thrones and dominions. The whole of the earth is organised by the satanic kingdom into territories that are unseen to us. Why does he do this? Because he's simply trying to copy God's kingdom that is organised beautifully with the angelic host. And here we are. We are the battleground. We are the prize, the human heart. So, So we have this tremendous foe who is before us seeking to destroy us. Sometimes he works deceitfully. At other times he works in full view as we witness death and destruction on our screens and we see what he causes. Yes, he is a defeated foe. But he's not dead yet. He's still fighting, he's still raging and he knows that his time is close. He knows that his time is ending and he's getting more desperate. But he's definitely, definitely a foe to be reckoned with until the day of his final destruction. So, my brothers and sisters, be strong. Be a strong Christian, a strong Christian warrior, not in your own strength, but in the Lord. Fight the good fight of faith. Jesus is our warrior and we are in him. And therefore we have strength and his power and his authority in the trials of life as we continue to trust in him. And in the next few weeks we're going to look at some of the armory that God has given each of us and every believer to fight this battle that is before us.
But this morning I've given you a description of the foe that we face. But the one in us is much greater than the one that is in the world. Let us always remember that and declare it day and night. Amen.